0: Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, welcome Barbara Kinnear to an episode on history. She co-authored today's book with Colonel Richard Ernest Evans. The title, Richard Eager, A Pilot's Story from Tennessee Eagle Scout to General Montgomery's Flying Fortress. Colonel Richard Ernest Evans was a heroic pilot that went from the Tennessee Eagle Scouts to General Montgomery's Flying Fortress. His family has released a biography that we're discussing today showcasing the humanity and personality of war heroes through detailed accounts of Golden Age aviation that spanned the 1930s to the 1960s. His daughter and author, Barbara Kinnear, hopes to preserve more of Richard's legacy with this book's release, and proceeds will benefit the Air Force Aid Society. And also, because this year is the Air Force's 75th anniversary, it is timely. Barbara, please give your audience more details about your family history, aviation, and also uh, Colonel Richard Evans.
1: Thank you, Nathan, and again, thank you for uh, your interest in this book. I'm very, I feel, I'm very grateful for this opportunity to talk with you. Uh, this book is a large one. Uh, my father wrote it uh, in 1990 to 1993. But just to give you a bit about my family, as you've asked, uh, I was um, dad was born in Tennessee. He had a wonderful family. There were five boys. Uh, one did pass away at two years old. His father was a principal of Knoxville High School for 41 years. He grew up, as, again, as a, a normal kid in Tennessee, enjoying the Smoky Mountains. Uh, as he was growing up, of course, um, the World War I was over, and the folks thought that World War I was over forever, but it was not. Um, as he w- became high school, he was involved, extremely involved in the ROTC. He knew the war was coming. And he was beginning to realize he would be called, so he was making preparations. He became an Eagle Scout because he loved scouting. And that really had so much to do with his life, uh, the rest of his life. He wanted to, he knew the war was coming, as I mentioned, so he decided he wanted to fly and not walk. So he became a pilot on his own and... Then he entered um, the military. They called him, they called him up and he went into the US Army Air Corps. So he served during the war and then he reached he went into the reserves after the war and then the Korean War came in. And they, they asked him back to, to work in the Air Force, which he did. And he continued uh, for 20 years plus in the Air Force. He flew everything he could get his hands on. Um, But my brother and I, I will say my family, we grew up in the Air Force. We were very happily called ourselves Air Force Brats. And we moved around with my father and my mother. And um, we're very proud to be a part of the Air Force
0: family. And when did you both start writing this book? And also, when did you get involved with it?
1: My father started writing it between 1990 and 1993. We had he was telling his stories and my brother encouraged him, Dad, why don't you write these stories down? And so he started and this was you know already 50 years past basically 50 years past the war. So he worked very hard. he focused on the facts and making sure that what he wrote and remembered were true and uh, he wrote with humility, He wrote with humor, and he had a great sense of history and what was very important for a reader to um, understand about what was going on in the war. He had a very interesting place. He was General Field Marshal Montgomery's pilot for four months, plus plus, and he got to know the general quite well since they were flying around North Africa, and there would be times when the general would be up in the cockpit with my dad and sometimes getting flying lessons. So that was a very interesting part of the book, the relationship uh, with this extremely famous general, which I can tell you about a little later. Uh, He was of course the head of the British army. Um, I think also he wrote with, um, I didn't, I helped along the way as far as being a willing listener Uh, And so were other family members, but he wrote, you know, he, he worked hard on it and we would, um, so I, I will tell you that I had all of his chapters. He tried to get it published. He tried to, but in those days, the, they didn't have the ability to be an independent publisher as well. In fact, I think if you were an independent publisher, you were called a vanity publisher, um, but so he got older and he passed away in 2006 i vowed that i would finish the book and get you know get it published because i thought his his stories were wonderful stories and people would want to understand what was going on in north africa and the mediterranean during world war II. so the heart and soul of the book uh, would be the night the, excuse me the uh, 21 chapters he also wrote a glossary with humor, Yankee humor, not an academic uh, glossary. And so it's almost another part of the book. It is of course, part of the book. He, um, I've developed um, a chronology that was very important to show where he was and what was going on around him. And that was a chronology of his entire life. I had all of his Air Force archive personnel uh, material. I I do have all of his flight records. So the flight records for a pilot, of course, are extremely important because it proves how many hours you have flown and what you have flown. So I knew exactly where he was in North Africa because of those flight records and what he flew. That was very, very important in the book, I believe. Also, um, the book is large, it's 508 pages, uh, because there are um, documents of orders that are very pertinent. The the order, for example, telling him that he was gonna be General Montgomery's pilot. Uh, Also 150 photographs are in the book. They're iconic and they're beautiful. Some from family, some from the Imperial War Museum, some from other places. The um, also the letters back and forth to family, which were written that at that point of time, so you knew exactly what he was thinking and what family members were thinking. So that's also
0: a part of history. And who else was involved with authoring the book? Maybe not the authors themselves, but did anybody contribute uh, to making it happen?
1: Ah, uh, yes, you. Extremely wonderful, skilled people have helped me with this book. Of course, Dad was the author, and um, it was what I didn't mention to you is that I lost all the chapters in the f- uh, fire in Santa Barbara, California. the The entire home was burned to the ground, and so I didn't have his the chapters that I thought were his best. Um, I thought, how am I going to do this? He died in 2006. The fire was in 2008. And soon, many months later, my stepmother said, come get all these boxes. They belong to your dad. And so I did. And in those boxes were drafts and drafts and drafts and wonderful material. And I realized we can do this book. We can pull it together. So the helpers would be wonderful people that I knew were good readers. To, to make sure that they, they, they could give me their thoughts on the chapters. My wonderful husband and daughter, wonderful editors, we worked very hard. We, worked, we researched, I researched everything, everything, again, all the facts. Uh, we went to London, went to the Imperial War Museum, went to the photographic archives and the other archives that held Monty's uh, diaries, General Montgomery's diaries. Those are all very important um, resources. Um, so that was part of it. So then I had a wonderful line editor who made sure that the dots connected. That, you know, you mentioned somebody in chapter 20 and they weren't mentioned before. What is the connection? That, those kinds of um, um, interesting pieces of a book that you need to clean up. I, I had a wonderful designer. Uh, which she chose the color blue, which I love. And also, of course, it's very important that you have beautiful graphics and you have beautiful typeset. And also a publisher here in in my town uh, helped me get it online. And the book became live, as they say, on Amazon on um, September 12th, 2021. And now it is a card cover, a soft cover, and now it's also a digital ebook. So many, many people have helped. Also, a publicist has been helping me um, get the word out. It's so important. You can put a book online, but nobody knows it's there unless they happen by. Um, the keywords, of course, are important, but you still need help to get the word out.
0: Much of the book starts in Tennessee. Um, how important is Tennessee to the overall making of your research?
1: Tennessee is where the family uh, was born and brought up. It's, uh, you know, hometown Knoxville. <clears throat> that was very important because of, the, you know, how these, how dad and his brothers were brought up and what gave them um, the resources They all, four, survived the war, Uh, three pilots and one navigator, all very lovely men. Um, Tennessee was very important because of that, because of their upbringing. And just the life in Tennessee was described, you know, just how they grew up, what did they do, and, you know, how was the high school or the junior high and things like that. So Tennessee was very, very important. Dad did not settle in Tennessee though after the war. Uh, he was in te- in uh, the LA area in Pasadena where he went into the insurance business but again South the uh, Korean War started and they uh, the Air Force asked him to come back. So then Florida became a part of our family, uh, Nebraska and Texas. The other parts of um, dad also spent of course tremendous amount of time in the Mediterranean fighting World War II. So he was in all over North Africa, Sicily, Italy, Malta. And then he had to fly over Switzerland you know, to the um, German um, embedded countries.
0: You were raised in Pasadena. Was your story different from your dad's in Tennessee? Or do you see a lot of similarities in Richard's upbringing for you?
1: I think it's very different. Dad was in a lived, you know, grew up from all his life, all of his, let's say, educational life uh, or high up to high school, college. He was in, in college for two years before he was pulled into the war. Um, very different because he's in one place. So I grew up and my brother and I as um, moving around because the Air Force moves you around a lot. Uh, we were in Florida for we were in Texas. Excuse me. We we're in California. And then, uh, um, Florida for three years, while Dad worked with the B forty seven magnificent airplane. Then we went to he he progressed up the line and he became um, a colonel. We were at Strategic Air Command and off at Air Force and uh, Air Force Base. Then that is near Omaha, Nebraska. And then uh, he was transferred to Carswell Air Force Base, Fort Worth, Texas. And so we moved there as well. Um, And that's when he was flying the B-58. He actually was the first SAC or Strategic Air Command officer to fly the B-58. And that was an amazing, amazing jet. Could do Mach 2, which is twice the speed of sound.
0: Um. So, next question, then, following up with your previous question, is about some of those airplanes, um, the B seventeen Flying Fortress and the B twenty nine Super Fortress. Why are those so important for you? Um, and what other airplanes did he fly again?
1: The B seventeen was extremely important because that was the first bomber that he was in during World War Two. Um, he had ex- uh, tremendous training in the B seventeen in the United States before he flew over and uh, he, they took the Southern route. This, his, he, he was uh, part of the 99th battle group. And they had a group of 38 B-17s, brand new, out of Boeing, B-17s. And they flew from Miami, uh, down to past Cuba, down to the, to South America. And then they had to fly over the Atlantic, um, which is really frightening. There's nobody, there's nobody, no place to stop if you have a problem when you're flying over the Atlantic. And they landed in Africa. So the B-17 was an extremely important plane. They called it the Flying Fortress because it had nine guns on it. There were 10 men on that plane. And the plane was very important because um, it could be shot up. And it would still make it home and of course there were many crashes many many losses of course you know hundreds of losses but if that plane was hit a lot it still there was it, it still would, could get home um, it had a lot of backup so the, the pilots appreciated that B17 very much the B29 was a very fine plane could get a lot higher in altitude so for example the B29 in fighting in the pacific was higher in altitude and the um, Japanese couldn't reach it to um, bring it down. So they were able to, you know, it's it sad they were able to bomb Tokyo and such be, from a higher altitude. So it was very, very beautiful airplane as well. Dad flew the B-47, the B-52 and the B-58 as I mentioned. He flew trainers. He flew fighters. He flew fighters for fun because he was not a fighter pilot. He was a bomber pilot. Um, I, like the, I like to say that the B-17 was um, produced by many, many Rosie the Riveters. Uh, they were out there constructing those planes, and they are to be applauded.
0: And what about Eager's 99th Bomb Group? Was he always a part of this group, or did he ever change his regiment?
1: He started out on the 99th, and and they were making that they were doing their, they were um, flying their missions, and then he was asked and he was getting really good at what he was doing. He was learning to be a very fine pilot, and uh, as they flew over Italy, Sicily, uh, small islands to, to, to um, help rid those areas of the, the Italian uh, and the German armies. Um, he, let me, he, let's see, back to your question. When he was ordered to fly um, the American, an American B-17 with an American crew, um, the Field Marshal British General Montgomery, he became, he became, became part of the Eighth Army. Uh, all by himself, I mean, with the B-17. So wherever General Montgomery wanted to fly, that's where Daddy would fly him. So for a while there, he worked for he worked with the 8th, British 8th Army. And um, then when he went to the Pacific, he worked with another squadron, and that was the B-29 squadron, the 316th Bomb Wing, and that put him in Okinawa. And fortunately, very few months after Um, The two nuclear bombs were um, sent and um, he was able to the end of the war. So then he got himself home um, in a very interesting way, flying the other direction. A lot of people wanted to, after the war, it was very hard to get home because all the transports were full of a lot of army people. And so he found a way of, instead of flying from Okinawa east to the United States, He found rides and flew west. So he went over the Atlantic to
0: get home anyway. Were you and the family a part of those trips abroad or were you always in the States?
1: We were always in the States. Um, After the war, that's when we came, you know, we were born. Um, So we were always in the States and dad, my father's, uh, war, he was um, he was stationed in the States because of the Strategic Air Command. So, But there were times when he'd be gone for quite a while. In Florida, he worked with um, testing the B-47. And they tested for speed. They tested for temperature. They tested for everything. And the whole idea was to show, and sadly, this was the Cold War after South Korea. After the Korean War, there's the Cold War. And so they um, were very, very, you know, always testing the B-47 to show the folks uh, in Moscow, uh, in the communist country, uh, that our B-47 could make it over there if they had to, to protect, for example, Berlin or some other countries. So they were always testing. Another Dad was in charge of testing the B-47 in Greenland and Newfoundland. You know, what... Could they start those engines up in you know sub freezing temperatures? Very interesting. What, what how do you take off in those temperatures? You know, how do you keep your runway in good shape? You know what do you wear? So uh, he was he had to be gone uh, for three months at a time. A couple of times when we were in Florida, in tech in Nebraska, no. So basically, he flew and we stayed in one place.
0: And what kinds of sources did you have access to that maybe the public wouldn't have, especially in your research process? Um,
1: So the resources were his Air Force personnel files and the Air Force um, flight records. That was fabulous. But the other resources were um, other – when. Looking up the um, background of other officers that my father worked with, also you can do that. You know, there's so much now on the internet for all of us to research. That's a big help. And then, of course, the Air Force archives that are in Washington and and, and I think in St. Louis, uh, the Imperial War Museum, fabulous resources, just amazing resources. And you get permission, and you go, and you read, and you look, and and, um copy and it's it's wonderful what is available. So as far as people being a lot a lot of you know, all of my dad's friends are gone so there were not other people I could talk with. So it's basically resources in museums in archives that I used and personal as I said the files that my father kept um, he kept thank goodness wonderful files and how they made it from war zones you know his orders for example how he made it from war zones to to the united states was probably a small miracle
0: who do you think also had the most impact for you and for richard's life um in terms of maybe interviewing or um in terms of also like having a legacy to you know share these kinds of stories outside of you
1: (laughs) outside of me for Dad, his father, his father was a wonderful, compassionate, smart man. That was my father's resources in growing up. and uh, he and his mother also was just a very fine family. They were very, very good parents to their children. so there that was their resources um in growing up. Um, for me, my family are my resources also. Um, that's so, you know, that's where you go first, is is family. And I, I, you mentioned interview. I never interviewed uh, another person in regards to my dad's book as far as, as a resource.
0: You include poems in this book that he read, wrote. Um, What can you tell us about those poems?
1: He wrote with humor not only in the, the regular stories, but in his, with his poems. And they, not that they were all funny, but he just, he, he loved it. And I think it's because he had a very fine um, literature background growing up. And his father, for example, you mentioned, you know, that one of the poems is Invictus uh, called you know, Flyboy Invictus. And Invictus was a poem uh, by William Ernest Henley in 1875, and that was a poem that his father said memorize this son memorize this poem because and that shows you the importance that literature meant to his his father and his mother i think um, because you know for example this poem was a poem of inner strength and even when dad got it would get he, in his stories he would see when he got into some trouble where he was you know life and death he would remember this poem because of the it was inner strength. So, but he just enjoyed it. He enjoyed funny, he, he wrote funny letters home. I received funny letters, you know, again, that was a sense, a sense of humor that he had. And so uh, somewhere along the line, he realized he could write. I I think also, he didn't start writing this book until 1990. But the fact that he saved so many pieces of his background or his, you know, these letters and these V-mails, that makes me realize that he probably had a thought about writing it, but maybe it wasn't clear. Also, there's a letter I read from his mother that said, son, everybody loves your letters. Uh, they think you should write a book. And that was back in 1939. So um, he finally did, and we
0: were so proud of him. The Stars and Stripes is a popular newspaper. Do you know of any more journalism outlets that either Richard was consuming or that he was mentioned in, in stories?
1: None. None at all. Uh, there There were so many men and women in the war having stories of their own. Yes, there would be a little news article in the Knoxville uh, newspaper regarding um, something that my father had done, that you had to be very—you know—the you know, communications from the war, you, you know, the the military had to be extremely careful about what they sent home, and uh, and they were, and oftentimes a letter with too much information didn't make it to the family, but there would be small articles, but nothing large uh, at all. Regarding his position and what he did in the war. Um, but I do have a little something that he sent his father regarding, you know, because it was, he was being the pilot for General Montgomery was a big deal. Uh, big deal. Number one, he was trusted to keep the safety of this, of the Field Marshal Montgomery, that um, keep him safe in an airplane. So they trusted dad's ability to be a pilot. Um, they also trusted his um, ability to um, be careful, you know, to keep quiet about it. Um, for example, if any German spy knew that, that, that dad was flying Montgomery, and they call him Monty for short, um, in this airplane, the B 17 Teresa Lita, that plane would be attacked to bring the, you know, they, what they wanted was to get rid of uh, General Montgomery. Uh, but this one little thing about how he felt about being the pilot, and I'll read it to you. <clears throat> and it was a letter, June 19, 1943. And my father said to his father, These experiences with the brass hats are unusual, Pop, and as such interesting, but know ye, they are not the real thing. I am these days in the company of generals, air marshals, and kings, only because of circumstances, not because of anything meritorious that I have accomplished.
0: Who's Mrs. Oglesby?
1: Oh, that's Oglesby. <laughs> Mrs. Yes. Oglesby was a cranky lady down the street and but she wasn't she was a sad lady. Um, they felt like she was sad she and her husband because they didn't have kids. And so she had a beautiful beautiful garden that she loved. And um, there's a whole uh, chapter on her, of course, because this this was dad was probably, my father was probably six or seven years old. And he got talked into doing something very, very bad by his older brother. And that was to, what happened was Mrs. Oglesby poisoned a neighbor's dog because the dog was in her yard. And this was, of course, horrific, especially in the mind of a seven-year-old or eight-year-old. So um, dad was talked into doing this. So in the middle of the, in the, in the at night, he was talked into taking tar, whoop, hot tar, in a bucket and going up and down the sidewalk in front of her house. And so, uh, of course, that was a horrible thing for him to do. And he was he was a youngster. And, and the whole story is how his father um, worked with dad about it, that it was it was not a good thing to do. Uh, it was an interesting and sad story because then also when dad was had to walk up and say he was sorry to Mrs. Oglesby, she also felt sorry that she had poisoned a dog. So it was a, a sad story as well as another, again, a learning, a story of, of learning as a child with the help of your father. <laughs>
0: How has the Tennessee community responded to Richard's legacy? Are there dedications to him anywhere in the Knoxville community or nearby?
1: No, there are no dedications. Um, Knoxville sent many, many, many young men off to war, and more men than women, of course. And um, there are, of course, memorials, you know, for all of the men that went to the different wars. Um, and then my father survived. The war, so you won't see a memorial to him because he didn't die in the war, and and uh, so no, he Knoxville does not recognize him as some uh, great person. Um, the friends of Knoxville, the family, we all they remember Dad, and again he and his brothers and many others went to war, so it wasn't what he, you know it wasn't something that he did by himself he joined a lot of other very brave men and women.
0: Who is General Montgomery? I know that's in the title.
1: Yes, sir. Uh, General Montgomery uh, is the field marshal. He is best known uh, as chasing General Rummel, the German, very famous German uh, general, out of North Africa. And also out and and also uh, chasing the Italian and German armies out of Sicily and out of Italy. The whole idea was the reason why Montgomery was down there was to defend uh, Rommel. Let me say to defend, of course, North Africa, but Rommel was very close to Cairo. And if he'd gotten to Cairo, he would have taken the Suez Canal. And that would have been a real difference in how the war was fought in World War II was fought, a real difference. It could have been, it it, it would be catastrophic if the Germans had control of the Suez Canal because the gas, the the military, whatever was needed to fight the war would have to go another route. The whole Mediterranean was very dangerous as well. So it would have been been catastrophic um, for the British at that time. So he was a very famous general because he he was extremely um, good with his army. For example, he would not just go ahead unless there was support, like all the um, everything they needed: the ammunition, the the petroleum, the food, the first aid was right there with the army as they forged ahead, chasing the Germans and the Italians out of North Africa, you know, city by city by city by. By village, by mountainside. So he was a very famous general. Um, very, he was very persnickety, he was arrogant. A lot of the American generals, Eisenhower, for example, did not like him really, but he was beloved by his army and he knew what he was doing. Um, and he 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 was he actually replaced another general in Egypt uh, who was not doing the job. And, and Rommel was getting very close to the Suez Canal. He also uh, was a great general in Normandy, you know, fought side by side, basically, or planned, let's put it, said planned side by side with um, General Eisenhower.
0: And King George Sixth, why was he in, uh, a significant part of this story, too?
1: He was a significant part because my father got to meet him. Um, and he was um, important of course because he was the king of the UK and the British Commonwealth. He was the father of uh, our late Queen Elizabeth. So why was he important? He, he was visiting when um, General Montgomery was able to get the German and Italians out of North Africa. Um, the king was able to come visit every you know all the different uh, military outposts to thank them and to show them how much, you know, how important it was and extremely wonderful for morale, excuse me. Um, But when he came to this airport, um, Castel Benito, which was in Libya, that's where my father had just come in with the B-17 to work with, excuse me, work with uh, General Montgomery. General Montgomery was extremely proud of his American B-17. So he actually, had my father, put it in just the right place so when the king was coming to meet everybody, he would see it. And so the king met my father, and there's a chapter called The King and I, <clears throat> or My Father Met the King. Mm. And they, they, they had a conversation. And it's really, it's, kind of, it's funny, um, the conversation And on the whole description of that day. So the king was very important to my father because number one, they met. And that was um, a wonderful, as you know, how often does an army officer um, get to meet a king? So that was part of it.
0: Also, you mentioned Eisenhower. Um, Are there any other presidents who you think you can vouch for?
1: No, I just know, you know, my father um, wrote of Eisenhower because he was the commander of the entire World War II effort for America. Um, But as far as other presidents being involved in our lives, not really, they were just presidents (laughs) as we grew up, different presidents, which is not a very good answer. But no, it's um, Eisenhower, of course, was, was, Amazing, you know, leader in World War II. And so that's why he's in the book a lot.
0: You write about the family dog, and then also Richard's nickname is Dick, apparently.
1: Well, he was called Dick as you know as a kid. And then the Richard Eager, though, which is of course the name of the book, Richard Eager, is his was his nickname given to him by fellow soldiers. Uh, because he was so eager, he, they called him Richard Eager. He was so eager to do it right, and basically, it was because he, he was an eagle uh, eagle scout to the bone. You know, he learned his lessons of being a good, fine eagle scout, and that's he seemed to be like an eagle scout for the rest of his life. But they, it was a, it was a, he did do a great job. In fact, he was such a fine pilot that as soon as he graduated from the Randolph Flying flying School down in Randolph. And instead of going off, they kept him to teach other pilots. They uh, they wouldn't let him go to war. So for two years, he flew and taught pilots and navigators, and then became even uh, a better pilot with the B-17. So as far as the dog, um, Judge was an amazing, you know, um, lo- a hound, you might say, and a dear, dear, dear friend of um, Richard or Dick. I mean, it was his best friend. And so there are lovely stories of the dog, including, sadly, um, when the dog died. Uh, but again, lessons in life as you grow up with your with your pets, even, you have lessons in life.
0: You probably mentioned this before, but what was Richard's job on the B-17? There are bunch of different ones.
1: Yeah. There are 10 men on a B-17, and Dad was the pilot. He was the command pilot. So as you know, there, you know there's the bombardier, the co-pilot, the engineer, the radio operator, gunner, navigators, and they all worked together very cohesively. And when it came to the defense of the plane, they all had a gun, except for the pilot, basically to protect the plane from fighters. There was, there was always a, a you know, different, there were nine guns that, uh, that's the other reason as I've already mentioned that it was called the Flying Fortress because it could defend itself. It didn't have to have a couple of fighters with it. Um, that was the whole idea. So uh, yes, he was the pilot.
0: The Marines hymn, which includes a line about Tripoli is so poignant. I wanted to know if Richard actually mentioned these other branches aside from the Army Air Corps.
1: Not really. Uh, he, the Army Air Corps um, never had anything to do with the Navy or the Marines because um, those are on the ocean. <laughs> um, the flight, the... the uh, something's going on. Anyway... I lost my track of thought. Sorry, uh, but they—they they never entered. You know, they would—they would see see each other in passing. You might say, but no, they didn't work with each other
0: um, very much at all. What about vacations? Is that a part of what you guys did during the time?
1: Yeah. Yes, we got to travel a lot through the United States. Uh, we enjoyed very much, if we were in, you know, Florida, we would travel all over Florida Florida, and see the different um, parks and such. And same thing with Nebraska or Texas. Or we would be seeing um, parts of the United States as we, you know, make road trips, especially when we were moving from one spot to the other. So we really enjoyed the United States as much as, you know, we could. Dad was not in the part of the... Um, Air Force that would send you to Germany for three years or Hawaii for three years. So um, we enjoyed vacations a lot.
0: Also, the Boy Scouts, where does that fit in as far as Richard and also you maybe wanting to, you know, be a part of the community?
1: Okay he was a boy scout and the scouts would meet at the basement of the church. And they uh, also were very involved in there, in the, in the church. His mother was in the choir, had a beautiful voice. Um, and so scouting was really important for uh, this family and for many other families in Knoxville. I think um, again, dad was a little fearful about going on and getting his Eagle scout because he had to get a swimming badge that meant a swimming badge, not only to know how to swim really well, but to be able to rescue somebody. Uh, he was, dad was a little fearful. And so there's a whole story about how he overcame that fear again, with the help of a mentoring adult. And, uh, so that is why it meant so much to him that he accomplished becoming an Eagle Scout. And as I said, he was somewhat of an Eagle Scout his entire life. Um, so i think i actually became a girl scout and a brownie and a girl scout because probably my father was a scout that's influenced influenced me and i my brother was a boy scout it was a lot of fun um the principles of the boy scout principles are really good principles for for you know running your life living your life i should say
0: you mentioned some of the wars outside of world war ii Korea. When did his career really start to dwindle down?
1: It never dwindled down. You know, the the, being in World War II was huge. And then going back into the Air Force and flying these jets were huge. The B-58, they he was he was the commander of the Test Squadron. And again, testing these planes all the time, making sure they can go the speed they're supposed to go, deliver um, bombs if they have to. Um, He was at at his height, um, the B-58 test squadron commander, and then he retired. Um, Then he became very involved at North uh, Rockwell. Let's see, North, well, the B-70. He became very involved with the b seventy. Which was an amazing airplane jet. Of course, could go even further than the further than Mach two, and only you know only two were built. But he was involved in explaining this airplane to Congress or anybody else that needed to have information on this B seventy. Unfortunately, uh, or not unfortunately, the B seventy was being developed as also the Intercontinental Rocket Systems. So it became apparent that the United States could defend itself with uh, rockets and not uh, manned bombers. So they did not decide to build you know, any other B-70s. So, and one, and one actually um, crashed because it was run into by a fighter. They were having a photograph um, time in the air and there was a horrible accident. So, um, so that was, so if you say, he, so he, yeah, he retired, and I guess that would be a dwindle, but, and then he stayed very active, um, traveling and, and then, re, you know, writing his book.
0: Where can we read more about Richard Evans? Are you the only person writing on this?
1: Uh, what do you mean, writing? Um, you can buy the book online for amazon.com, Barnes and Noble and many many other bookstores show it show the book online. There's a hard cover and a soft cover and on Kindle, KDP Kindle, Amazon, you can get the digital and so, and I think a lot of people really prefer the digital, especially because they're traveling and they can just bring out their their um, iPad or whatever and start reading, you know, reading. So it's becoming very popular. I'm really glad that I put the book on digital. It's very, ha- it's very very handsome on digital. The photographs came through beautifully. Uh, there are, you know, there's some... Not as many bookstores carry it. I think oftentimes, for a book like this, um, they it's they want they they say it's you know it's in line it's online and you can get it literally in twenty four hours, but they don't necessarily put it in their inventory. You ask another
0: question. What was it on that? I think it was if anyone else was doing this kind of research.
1: Oh, thank you. Uh, the book's finished, and I don't think anybody else is doing this kind of research, any, you know anymore. The book, as I said, the research has been done. Of course, there's always checks and balances. There's always making sure that, that you know one little mistake, oh my gosh, let's fix that. But uh, so far so good. Um, so my research is now on finding people like you, to talk with and to and to spread the word of of this inter, these interesting stories that I think a lot of people will will enjoy. The book is getting excellent reviews, which is very happy makes me very happy.
0: In addition to your reviews, well, can you actually speak to some of those reviews?
1: Well, they talk about oh, gosh. Thank you. That's interesting. How I they. In the interviews, reviews, they talk about um, understanding more about World War II because it's a more detailed. Uh, here's a here's one person's um, description who was there. The interviews talk about they not understanding what was going on in North Africa. You know, you hear about World War II in over the Pacific. You heard hear about World War II with the British defending themselves. Um, from the you know, the Germans who are sitting there in France and in Germany and everywhere else, you hear, you read about that, but not as much information on North Africa. I think people, people have reviewed it and appreciated um, the information on the B-17 and what a, an amazing plane. Cause my father would describe, you know, how he flew it and what he did and how he got out of trouble with an accident about to happen. For example, um, the people really appreciated that information. Um, they appreciated the fact that there was more information on what kind of personality General Montgomery was, you know, just an absolute amazing general. And what was he like um, when he wasn't on camera, for example? So those are some of the positive, re- I mean, they're all positive. It's a fi- you know, five-star reviews. Another really nice thing is that the book has received uh, two awards or two finalist medals in the Military History and Autobiography Biography, and these were awarded in May um, by the Next Generation Indie Book Awards Program. So I'm really, really pleased about that. Um, It's a finalist
0: and um, two awards, so that was really great. Are you doing any events, particularly in person, where you live? Because you mentioned your publisher. Any outreach?
1: Yes. Uh, I've been asked to speak a couple of places lately and will be asked again, I'm, I'm
0: pretty sure.
1: Um, I've got some wonderful photographs to show um, the audience. And it's really in, in really fun to do that. And then each photograph of course has a wonderful story. These are photographs, you know, out of the book, you know, 150 photographs in this book, kind of helps it why, you know, it's why it's so big. Um, But the other thing is my husband and I flew in a B-17 several years ago. And it was, I wanted to hear the sound of the engines, the brakes, the smell, just as much as I could um, to feel what my father must have felt except uh, he was in war so it was a wonderful I took video of being in this B17 and I've been able to patch that together and show uh, the um, folks that I've been talking to so yes I would I would enjoy I enjoy that to speak to different groups but I don't plan on traveling to other cities. Um, one thing, travel is pretty expensive now. Um, but the podcasts are very, very helpful if folks um, happen upon and want to learn a little um, World War II, North Africa, B-17 history. So um, really appreciate the
0: podcast
1: opportunity.
0: Do you have any final thoughts for your audience, um, listeners, people, anyone, scholars?
1: <laughs> oh, scholars, please read because there's a lot of, lot of history in this book and a lot of history that's um, corrected. And let me give you an example. My father flew the B-17 into Palermo Field on, he, in his uh, General Montgomery and all of his staff were in that airplane. And they flew in to meet General Patton. General Patton told Monty that the field was fine for a feat B-17. Uh, so dad f- got, you know, flew over the the, um, the air, airfield. They weren't airports in those days and realized it was too short. And uh, it, while he was circling another smaller plane, a DC-3, flew in, overran the, the runway, and ended up in some trees and caught fire. Um, That showed you that it was a dangerous field. My father really felt like he should just fly Monty back uh, and not have that meeting, but he knew how important that meeting was. Um, The wind was, uh, there was a good headwind. He could tell because he could see the smoke from the plane that had run into the, um, off the field. So he realized he could do it. So he started to land and uh, realized when they landed that brakes were gone, completely gone. So there was the ha- that was probably sabotage. Um, so my father had training in emergency landings, it's, and so he um, performed a ground loop, which is extremely dangerous, but it will save your life. Uh, ground loop is when you're going down the runway and you turn completely 180 degrees and go the other direction because your runway is running out. So my point of this story is that, and that's why this is a piece of history, is other books that I, oh, by the way, the ground loop was successful. <laughs> everybody got really, um, um, you know, it was it, centrifugal forces in a ground loop. So everybody got, you know, bock, you know got tr- thrashed, you know, in the plane, but they made it. Again, the story is that several books that I read said that the, this is when the B 17 Teresa Lita crashed and it was and burned. <laughs> and it did not. <laughs> My father did a ground loop. Everybody got out, had their meeting, and they got back in again. And he flew them off of Palermo, out of Palermo, and they landed in a large, large, uh, another air, air base with a huge length of runway that he could control the stop by using just the engines. And, and so that was incorrect history. And it threw me for a loop when I first read it, because you, you can't imagine. I mean, no, that didn't happen. And I guess what, what did happen is maybe a reporter saw the, the flames of the DC-3, which were put out very quickly, and then combined that with the B-17. And then all of a sudden it's written in a book, so that's why for academics there's a lot of history in this book. Um, other people will just enjoy this book because of the stories of family of of the war and 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 the different people that were with my father and their descriptions as well. The other thing I wanted to mention that and you did too and I really appreciate this very very much is that all proceeds are going to the Air Force Aid Society. Uh, I've absorbed all, all the book costs. And this is because my father felt it was, the ground crew people were so, so, so important to my father being able to survive the war. Uh, these are the folks who um, fixed the airplane so it could take off the next day and you could be secure that it would be able to land, um, come back home. And these are the folks who packed the peanut butter jelly sandwiches for the for the crew, the flight crew. These are the people that made sure the runways were clear, fixed the engines over the night, as I said, packed your parachute. So the Air Force Aid Society uh, supports all of those folks now. And so that's a scholarship, um, educational scholarship in my my father's name, which is Colonel Richard Ernest Evans, and it's already in, in, on, in process of being endowed, which is very exciting.
0: Great to hear. This has been a podcast episode of the New Books Network with your host, Nathan Moore. We thank Barbara Kinnear for enlightening us about Richard Eager, A Pilot's Story. Keep up to date on all things NBN, history, and literature to get more episodes in the future.